0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday, or listen to the whole series immediately at free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on HistoryExtra.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the History Extra Podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. What is a trade union? What did they fight for in the past? And what role did unions play in both the Great Depression and the formation of the Labour Party? On today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast, we're delving into the history of Britain's trade unions and taking a look at the battles that have taken place to improve workers' rights from the early decades of the 19th century to the present day. Answering your questions was the writer and labour movement expert Mark Crail, and he spoke to John Borkham.
2: So to kick us off then, Mark, could you just start by telling us what a trade union actually is? What's the most basic definition?
0: Sure. Well, there's lots of definitions, you know, if you look at different bits of legislation and so forth over the years, it changes. Um, The best definition, imperfect though it is, is probably the one drawn up by Sydney and Beatrice Webb in the 1890s. And they were the first serious historians of trade unionism. And what they said was that it was a continuous association of wage earners for the purpose of maintaining or improving the conditions of their employment. And if I can just briefly go through into some of those little bits, very briefly, um, continuous association that's quite important it's not a one-off campaign or something it's an organization which exists over time Uh, it's about wage earners Um, so it's not sort of um, a a common interest thing between employers and employees it's about the people who work for their wages Um, and it's about maintaining or improving so about defense as well as about um, getting more of what you've got And it's about conditions of employment, so not just about pay. It's also about the sort of conditions you work in, the hours you work and so forth.
2: Fantastic. That's a great summary. And how did the trade union movement actually start? You know, who first said, I have a good idea, it's called a union? And that that question actually (laughs) comes from Michelle Birkby on Twitter.
0: Fantastic. Well, wouldn't it be nice if there was this great aha moment, you know, this sort of light bulb thing, and someone said it, and that explains the next 200 years or so. Um, of course, trade unions uh, evolve uh, organically, they emerge organically from 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 work. Um, and there's probably always been what you would identify as trade union type of activity, wherever there's a workplace, people wanting to get higher wages, people wanting to get shorter hours. Uh, people wanting protection against bad bosses and so forth. But in a period where you haven't really got the same sort of employment relationships as you have uh, from the 19th century onwards, that doesn't really work, doesn't evolve into uh, formal trade unions as such. It's just stuff that's going on in workplaces. Um, What you begin to get, um, particularly towards the end of the 18th century, uh, is people forming unions. You've got uh, bigger employers forming, so there are more workers with more common interests, all in the same place at the same time, doing the same sorts of jobs, and so naturally they start to combine together um, to 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 protect their interests. But it's not just about that. You know, there's there's all sorts of other things going on as well. So friendly society type benefits. That's also an era where friendly societies are emerging and it's really quite difficult to distinguish between trade unions and friendly societies in this era. People want sick pay, they're not going to get it from their employers so they're banned together. They want um, some sort of payment in the event of, of a family death so they can bury their loved ones. Um, they want insurance if they lose their tools and all of that sort of stuff is covered by trade union membership and it's friendly society type benefits. And that's really where, where unions as organisations come from. Uh, and they gradually begin to gel and come together as permanent types of organisations uh, in that period, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century.
2: Because there is this perception, isn't there, that they evolve out of the old medieval trade guilds. Is is, is that accurate?
0: I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any sort of organisational continuity there. As I say, you know, people have always banded together Uh, to protect their own interests and advance their interests in the workplace. So in that sense, there's a sort of common theme there. But guilds, of course, didn't just represent the workers. Guilds were about um, apprentices, they were about journeymen, they were about masters, uh, and you progressed through the guild uh, with every expectation that at the end of it, you would be an employer yourself. When you come to trade unions, it's a very different sort of thing your chances of, of of starting off uh, sweeping the floor in a, in a mill and ending up being the mill owner um, are, are pretty remote. Um, so, you know, the, the interests of those different groups don't coincide anymore. There was certainly a fashion among some of the craft trade unions in the early 19th century, mid-19th century, uh, people like the printers, the stonemasons, when they're looking to their own past and they're sort of creating an almost mythological past for themselves uh, in which, which, you know, the Guild of Stonemasons or the Guild of Printers and so forth is their direct predecessor. But actually, organisationally, no, that's not the case.
2: Kieran Constable on Instagram wants to know, do the Toll Martyrs deserve any credit for the Foundation of Trade Unions? And as you answer this, Mark, it might be helpful just to explain who the Toll Martyrs were.
0: Sure. They of course they they definitely deserve credit. They deserve um, a lot of credit for what they did, for what they stood up for, and so forth. They didn't form the first trade unions. They you know they were not the foundations of trade unionism. So the Tolpuddle Martyrs came together in sort of eighteen thirty three um, to protect their interests to stop pay cuts uh, in the small farming community in Dorset in which they lived and worked. At that time there was a big upsurge in trade unionism. There was something called the Grand National Consolidated Trade Union, uh, which is a fantastic name for an (laughs) organisation, I think. Um, And that was led by Robert Owen, um, who's also known uh, for his role in in the cooperative movement um, and and other sort of um, utopian-type developments. And you had over a million people in different industries come together to form all these small unions and get together and, and, and press to protect their interests and each other's interests as well. Uh, The Toll Paddle Martyrs fell foul of um, a particularly uh, brutal um, set of local authorities uh, who who had them arrested, charged with administering illegal oaths, tried, initially imprisoned, eventually transported to Australia. And... Really, there is there is some view that actually they were picked on almost at random within this sort of Grand National Consolidated Trade Union um, as, as, as a group uh, who would be used as an example. So the full force of the law came down on them um, and they suffered it uh, and went off to Australia. There was a huge campaign, huge campaign to get them back Um The Grand National itself um, collapsed due to all sorts of internal problems, mostly financial, lack of the ability to to support each other across the country and so forth, Um, and also in the face of this this repression um, by the authorities who didn't want to see a huge trade union movement. Um, But there was an enormous campaign that that brought people together, Uh, huge demonstrations in central London, for example, uh, and eventually... uh, not immediately, but some years later, they were pardoned. Some of them made their way back to this country. Others ended up in Canada. Um, but certainly that was a successful campaign to, to, to save them from this sort of horrific transportation and imprisonment in, in Australia.
2: Indeed. And around the same time, I mean, th- this is the, the sort of height of the Industrial Revolution, isn't it? What about mill workers and factory workers? Are, are they part of the early trade union movement or, or is it more an artisan? concern? Well
0: they certainly are part of early trade unionism um, and by that I mean before about 1850 onwards, 1860, but they're not a significant part of it. Um, In that sort of first half of the 19th century really trade unionism where it's strong is about uh, craft workers, it's about engineers, it's about uh, carpenters and joiners, it's about masons, it's about printers uh, because they're the people who have some sort of leverage, some strength if they stick together. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's much easier if you have a couple of hundred mill hands go out on strike uh, to replace them uh, or to starve them into submission. Much more difficult to do that when you're looking at a small handful of highly skilled craftsmen um, who, who can stand together, support each other and can't be easily replaced. So, yes, factory workers, mill workers, they are forming trade unions they haven't really got any industrial strength in that early trade union period.
2: And just very briefly, as we're still in this sort of period, what was the relationship between Chartism and the trade union movement?
0: So Chartism is, is almost an umbrella movement. Um, you know, It has its clear set of objectives. It wants the right to vote. It wants the secret ballot. It wants equal electoral constituencies and so forth. And so that's a, there's a very clear set of demands there which succeed in uniting people from a whole range of different perspectives. Uh, and trade unions are one of those perspectives. There are a number of trade unions that get quite actively involved in supporting chartism, particularly in Lancashire, uh, Yorkshire, uh, and actually some of the skilled workers in, in London um, and so forth, supporting it. It's not something which is universally appealing to trade unions who see it as a, a, a side issue, as not their concern. Mm. What they're concerned is about the workplace and about improving life at work, uh, or improving their pay and so forth. So they're not really that interested in becoming involved in political campaigns. That said, you know, even even there, where there's unions that aren't particularly involved, you still get a lot of people. The same people are involved in in, in both, right? Uh, but don't necessarily see them as as being in part of the same um,
2: same struggle, same campaign. A popular internet search query is, when were trade unions legalised in Britain?
0: Right. It's more a gradual process than anything else. So there had always been combination acts attempting to restrict workers' rights to to combine together into unions, all the way back to the Tudors. Um, They tended to be about particular industries. Right at the very end of the 18th century, so in 1799 and 1800, we get the Combination Acts passed, and those are much more comprehensive attempts to crack down on trade unions. They, in theory, they also stop employers combining. But when in any one factory you've got one employer and you know 100 or 200 workers, then it has much more impact stopping uh, employees combining than it doesn't stopping employees employers combining. Sorry. So those acts are in place for the next quarter of a century. Um, They're very little used, but they're there as a threat. They create um, what I think in in, in later times is called a hostile environment. Um, So they're there in the background. They're a concern for you if you're involved in trade union activity, and they make it difficult to combine. You can't properly hold union funds and so forth because of the risk involved. Um, Those acts are, are repealed in 1824, and all of a sudden, there is no legislation governing trade unions. It was almost an accident. The parliament didn't see it coming. And then this repeal of the Combination Act went through. Uh, and you do get a big upsurge in, in in trade unionism from then. That didn't mean that trade unions then had a legal footing, though. So it's still difficult. Um and even as late as 1866, there's there's a there's a case in 1866 where the branch secretary of a, a, a local trade union ran off with the funds. And the union tried to <laughs> try to sue him to get the money back. Uh, and there was a court case about that. And the court ruled that although trade unions weren't illegal anymore, ne- neither were they lawful bodies. So they couldn't sue to get their money back. They couldn't sue, uh, they couldn't, they had no legal standing. So they were in this really grey area where they weren't legal, they weren't illegal. Uh, right. And that's, you know, that's, that's 40 years after the Combination Acts were repealed. Uh, and that, that, that held until 1871
2: when they were put on some sort of legal footing. Brilliant. A comprehensive answer. What were the first truly powerful trade unions? That's a question that has been asked by Max Quigley on Instagram.
0: I think for that, you're really looking at the middle of the 19th century. So as as chartism goes into decline, uh, and that's at least in part because the economy has picked up, um, so trade trade unionism picks up, but you also get a new method of organisation. So previously, trade unions have been very localised. Even where you've got a national organisation, all the power, all the decision making, all the funds sit in local branches or area branches. What you get in 1851 is the creation of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, Uh, and this is a new model of unionism. It's much more centralised, decisions are taken by an elected national executive uh, and an appointed general secretary, uh, and they are able to move the money around to where it's needed. If you've got a strike in Sheffield, you can call on the union's funds from all over the country to support that strike going on in Sheffield, Um, where you've got parliament considering legislation. It means you've got the resources to put together some sort of lobbying campaign to provide expert advice about trade unions and so forth. So it professionalises trade unionism, centralises trade unionism, and makes them much more influential uh, in, in government and around government. So really from that period on, you then get a number of other unions following that same same setup. So the Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners, for example, um, which is a, a few years later, is another good example of that. They professionalise, they come together. It does tend to make them more moderate. Um, you don't get the industrial militancy that you had before, where it was all very visceral and, and face-to-face in, in local disputes. But there are arguably lots of advantages to having that that new approach, and it really catches on, particularly among the craft and skilled unions.
2: Indeed. And, and when is the Trade Union Congress formed, or the, the TUC? TUC. Yes, that's that's
0: 1868. There had been a number of attempts to bring unions together in the past. They tended not to have any longevity. So, you know, one-off conferences, um, one-off attempts to combine on, on various issues... Uh, the TUC is the first time really that, that a big swathe of trade unions come together to create a new central body, um, uh, almost a sort of parliament of trade unionism, where they can share interests, um, support each other, have a central lobbying body and so forth. So it's it's in some ways, it's a sort of culmination of what happens when you start professionalising and centralising the individual unions they then come together on a central basis and start talking to each other and organising, both industrially and politically, uh, which is quite important.
2: Absolutely. And as we move into the late 19th century, this is a time when we start to see some sort of large-scale disputes, don't we? Such as the Bryant and May Match Girl strike in 1888. Could you explain what it was firstly and then what sort of impact it had?
0: Yeah, as you get to the end of the 1880s, trade unionism effectively expands rapidly into other areas. As we've been saying earlier on, trade unionism in most of the 19th century was really about craft unions, skilled unions. You then, towards the end of the 1880s, start to get lots of local small disputes among groups who aren't necessarily well organised. And one of those is the Bryant and May match workers, now, this is a mainly female workforce, uh, young women in the east end of London, uh, working for Bryant and May Match Factory um, in fairly awful conditions. And they try to take action against their employer. And for whatever reason, this catches the wider interest. So they start to get a lot of support from, from other trade unions, existing trade unions, Um who send in some of their best people to negotiate with with their employer? Uh, they get massive support throughout the country from people. Um, it's a, it's a great sort of uh, these days you might say telegenic, but there wasn't, clearly wasn't a, wasn't a tele much in those days. Yeah. But um, I'm sure it was great for the for the Illustrated London News. It was um, you know it was, a, it was it was something that really captured people's imagination and was quite an exciting dispute. And they won it. So that was a real boost. Um, you know, there's this group of young women workers, quite a marginalised group, who succeeded uh, in winning their dispute with a big, powerful employer uh, and in mobilising the trade union movement to in, in, in their support.
2: Yeah, and, and so was it mainly pay or was it working conditions as well that they were protesting against?
0: It was a bit of both. I mean, you know... the the working conditions now you look at and you think they're absolutely horrific. So you have this, fossy jaw, this illness affecting. You see the photographs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely horrible. Um, so working with the phosphorus that 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 um, has an awful effect on on the bones, the face, and so forth. Terrible, awful health problems as a result of working there difficult to do much about it in those days you know the health and safety structure didn't exist Um, but there was also about pay and about the way individual workers were were treated you know you could be easily laid off sent home told you weren't required uh, and they wanted security they wanted better pay so there was a whole range of issues uh, uh, coming up at around the same time
2: yeah and just and the following year we have the London dock strike as well could you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah, sure. So where the Bryant and May dispute really is quite a, a, an interesting symbolic victory, although not a huge one affecting loads of people, um, the Dock strike the following year um, was incredibly important. Uh, there were basically very few, very small trade union um, movement organisations uh, in the London Docks up until that point. But this was a dispute... About pay, which gradually snowballed. Um, And it involved thousands upon thousands of London dockers, brought the docks to a standstill, led to a big increase in the unions that were there. More importantly than that, it sort of opened the way, really, for non skilled workers or less skilled workers to start creating unions, forming unions. Um, and having some real voice uh, through through those unions it 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 was called um you know the, the the new unionism um it it massively expanded it unions were no longer about protecting a small sectional interest of of, of engineers or whatever it was about organizing the workers as a whole uh, and that's a, a, a huge sort of change in in how how it was all seen
2: and what role did the unions then play in the birth of the labor party you know how, how did those Become so intertwined with each other.
0: Uh, well, the, the TUC itself, the the the, the, the committee organ running the, the TUC was originally called the Parliamentary Committee of the TUC. Right. Um, so that was their political voice. There was no Labour Party as such uh, in the nineteenth century. There were Labour candidates or LibLab candidates originally, so they were working men who were elected with the support of the Liberal Party, um, and those tended to be people from a trade union background, there was disillusion that this was ever going to get trade unions very far. And as you had people who were also active in, in, for example, the Independent Labour Party, which is a socialist organisation of of its own, it wasn't, uh, wasn't the Labour Party of today, those ILPers were also active in in, in, in trade unionism. Um, And there was a growing sense that what trade unions needed was their own political voice in Parliament, independent of the Liberals or any other party. So come 1906, um, you have the first Labour MPs elected. Now, there is no Labour Party in the country as such. um, In order to You couldn't join the Labour Party as an individual member. You joined an affiliated organisation, and that might be a trade union, that might be the ILP, uh, Independent Labour Party, that might be the Fabian Society, and those bodies themselves were what made up the Labour Party. That didn't change until the 1920s, when it became an individual membership organisation. So certainly in that early period, the Edwardian period onwards to about 1920-odd, the Labour Party in Parliament was unequivocally the voice of the trade union movement. It felt it needed that voice there because you couldn't resolve every problem in the workplace. There were things that you needed legislation and law for.
1: Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In Liverpool and
0: London, there were strikes by the police and that had to be broken up by by the army. Um, And in fact, as a result of that, uh, the police and prison officers were legally banned from joining a trade union. uh, And that legal ban still is in place today.
2: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. Zip Recruiter. Once you post your job, Zip Recruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with Zip Recruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Absolutely. I've got a question here from the History Department at the College of Richard Collier in Horsham. How many women were involved in the trade unions around this time? We've
0: got figures going back to 1896, or the 1890s, certainly. So in 1896... There are 1.4 million men in trade unions and 142,000 women. So around a tenth of the number in trade unions are, are women. Although trade unionism then expands between then and the, the the first world war, the proportion of men and women doesn't really change very much. It grows a the the, the proportion of women grows a bit, but you know that one in ten figure holds fairly well. When you get to the First World War, of course, what you see is a lot of men going off to fight and in the trenches and their places in the workforce being taken by women. Uh, And so the the proportion of women in trade unions actually rises quite quite markedly. It falls back after the First World War when women are pushed out of the workplace uh, and and stays fairly low uh, until the Second World War. So in 1918, you had 1.2 million women in trade unions. It fell back below a million and didn't rise above a million again until 1939. Right. Uh, the, the really big permanent change uh, came in the Second World War. Um, and then you saw things like um, the, the the Amalgamated Society of Engineers actually changed its rules to admit women for the first time. So that was a permanent change. As recently as 1968, I say recently in historical <laughs> terms perhaps, <laughs> um, you're looking at seven and a half million men less than two and a half million women. So it's improved since the since since the 1890s, but it's still a ma- massive majority of of, of um, men in the trade union movement. Um, that didn't reverse. It reversed in 2004. Right. For the first time ever in 2004, there were more women trade unionists than men. Uh, and in 2020, uh, that's still the case. That's stayed the same ever since. So 2.8 million men in 2020, 3.8 million women in uh, in 2020 that's a, a you know a, a huge change but over a period of, of, of more than a hundred years <laughs> um trade unionism now isn't about sort of you know men below ground uh, in coal mines or in car factories or whatever it's um it's about teachers and nurses and so forth and so the whole shape of the workforce particularly the unionized workforce has changed
2: fantastic and and then so just going back then to the we sort had of warden area and as you as you mentioned the great war did the Great War galvanise the union movement at all?
0: Uh, it did. There the, had the been whole development of trade unionism before the war, so you had trade unionism going into new areas, even following on from the dock strike. So the dock strike didn't necessarily lead to a permanent um, presence. For, for trade unions among among unskilled workers, it fell back a bit. But then from the end, in the 1890s, you start to see trade unionism encroaching on other areas you wouldn't have expected. So the Postman's Union is formed in 1889, uh, the National Union of Shop Assistants in 1891, the Association of Women Clerks and Secretaries in 1903, and you start to see the growth of, of, of women's trade unionism there. In the final years before the First World War, there's a big upsurge in... Trade union militancy in, in in strikes in the number of strikes uh, and disputes that are taking place, and that's been ascribed to, to various things, including a, a growing interest in what's called syndicalism, uh, the idea that you that you push for power through workplace organisation rather than politics. You know, perhaps a bit of disillusionment that the creation of the Labour Party in nineteen oh six hadn't overnight created a, a a labour working class government. So there's there's that element. There's various other things. At the end of the First World War, of course, you've had the had the the, the Russian Revolution going yeah. on, on the other side of the world, and to some extent, you know that probably does galvanise some people. in In those early days, uh, people are enthusiastic about that, and they see it as as uh, an advance for workers and a, a sign that that working people can can run their country, uh, run their workplaces, and so forth. So it probably does enthuse people, but you've also got immense um, dislocation of industry. Uh, you know, people are coming back from the front wanting decent homes to live in, decent jobs to do, decent pay, uh, and they're not finding that. And so people are not very happy when they come back and find find this situation, and they're pressing for, for, for more. They want better. And of course, although the Russian Revolution doesn't necessarily have a direct impact here, what you have got is the creation of a communist party in this country for the first time um, with this highly disciplined, um, dedicated, small group of, of politically motivated workers who uh, are in a position to influence how unions operate uh, and what unions do. And they they make the movement quite a bit more militant in, in those years. Uh, so there's a lot of industrial militancy around even to the state to the stage where the police went on strike um, right. in in Liverpool and London, there, there were strikes by the police, and that had to be broken up by by the army. Um, and in fact, as a result of that, uh, the police and prison officers were legally banned from joining a trade union. Uh, and that legal ban still is in place today. So, yeah, there was a lot going on in that period, I think it's fair to say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A lot going on, definitely. Of course, one of those things, come to the 1920s, is the general strike. Firstly, what was the general strike, and why did it then fail?
0: So, essentially, it's about the threat of pay cuts for miners, Um, but you have to sort of be aware of the the vast importance of, of, of coal to this country at the time, you know, it it powered everything. It it, it powered all the power stations that provided the electricity for your home, it powered industry, it powered the trains and ships. Um, Basically, nothing could happen in this country without coal. And there were more than a million men uh, employed in the coal industry in the 1920s at any one time. So despite this, despite the importance of the coal industry, Um, By the mid-1920s, it was in real international difficulties. Um, Winston Churchill, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, had taken the country back onto the gold standard, uh, and that meant that exports from this country were really expensive (laughs) compared with from other countries. Imports were much cheaper, so the coal industry became much less competitive internationally. Um, We'd also taken out a lot of the good coal, the easy-to-get-out coal, Um, during the war, when there was massive demand for it. And so it became more expensive to extract coal. And of course, the the mine owners, uh, and and coal mining was was in private hands in those days, wanted to protect their profits. uh, And they were attempting to drive down the wages of coal miners. Um, There had been previous disputes about it. But by the time we got to 1926, the miners had decided to take a stand. So... In May 1926, um, under threat of, of pay cuts, the uh, Miners' Federation of Great Britain, as it then was, um, called its members out on strike. Uh, they had the support of the TUC, which organised um, solidarity action by uh, the, on, on the railways, in, in other modes of transport and so forth. And so the country almost drowned to a halt uh, for a while. It didn't end well, I have to say. <laughs> the government was actually quite well prepared. There'd been a long lead-up to this dispute. So there were lots of volunteers in place. You've, you've probably seen the old black-and-white um, newsreels yeah. um, of you know old Etonians uh, manning buses fairly ineffectively <laughs> and so forth. There, there, was, there was a lot of that. If that was more important symbolically. Again, it was about showing that you had the middle classes on the side of the government, Um, rather than about breaking the strike. The real breaking of the strike was done by the army, um, which, for example, was able to ensure that um, pickets outside the docks were not able to to stop goods coming in and out. So the government had the upper hand. It was able to keep the economy running. Uh, There was also a propaganda battle going on. As the strike started, there were only two, two newspapers publishing in this country. One published by the government, um one published by the TUC <laughs> so there was very limited uh, ability to to work out find out what was going on unless you were directly involved the government not unnaturally cracked down on um the paper available to the TUC to publish its own newspaper and things so forth so it effectively had a, a, a quite a control over the information that went round So if the government started saying, well, people are drifting back to work, the strike is failing, you had no other information to to, um, contradict that, uh, whether it was true or not. The strike lasted only nine days, at the end of which the TUC felt it could not go on. Some of that was due to um, a lack of support among among some of the, the workers who were needed to support it if it was going to continue as a general strike. Um, some of it was a recognition that actually the government was pretty much in control still. And so the TUC attempted to find uh, a a settlement with with the mine owners. Um, The settlement that was reached was not a great one. In fact, it was an awful one. Um, It was pretty much what the mine owners had proposed in the first place. Um, And so everyone went back to work except the miners who decided they were going to fight on. Uh, And they fought on throughout that summer and autumn. It had started in May, it dragged on to Christmas. Um, And of course, you know, very, very difficult when you're uh, attempting to live on nothing in in communities which rely entirely on coal mining. It wasn't as if there was a big community around them of other people doing other jobs who could support them. These were mining villages, mining towns. um, And so they suffered a lot, uh, but were eventually over time forced back to work on worse terms and conditions.
2: Now we're in this interwar period. I've got a question here from Leah Falcon on Instagram. She wants to know, what role did trade unions play during the Great Depression?
0: Unions were weaker as a result of the general strike in 1926. Um, And also uh, a whole swathe of additional workers were were banned from joining trade unions. So civil servants uh, had to leave trade unions, for example. Um, So unions were in a fairly weak position. Despite that, they remained pretty much as they had been um, in, in most industries. Um, and there's not really a whole lot going on. You know, they're licking their wounds, they're attempting to recover. In individual workplaces, there are disputes. There are no huge national strikes um, in that period, but neither are there. They're sort of massive defeats. Uh, it, things go on on a surprisingly sort of, stable level, really, in that sort of um, 1930s period. And, of course, the economy starts to, to to build up later on in the 1930s, particularly with rearmament and so forth. And that does create more jobs uh, and better pay and so forth. So um, trade unions, I think probably the best you can say is that trade unions survived. Um, they were not in a terrible state throughout that, uh, but neither did they make huge gains or, or, or achieve very much.
2: Right, Okay, And you sort of briefly mentioned it earlier, but the Second World War then, what's the impact of that on the trade union movement?
0: It's huge, really. Again, it's another sea change in trade unionism. Um, With the coalition government, um, Ernie Bevin, who'd been General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union since the early 1920s when it was formed, Britain's biggest union, becomes Minister for Labour uh, with power to direct people into jobs and around the country and so forth. Huge power, more power than probably any minister has ever had before or since, uh, particularly over the economy. Um, and he was a trade unionist by by you know by inclination, by heart, by mind, by background, he was wholly a trade unionist. But what happened under him and during the war is that trade unions were effectively brought in to government, not running the country, but to be consulted to be asked their views uh to help organize how the economy should 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 run how industries should 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 operate and so forth and so they started to be heard they were they had a voice um right at the heart of government and that persists whether that's because just because there was a Labour government after the war or whether you would have had that that sort of more corporatist approach anyway regardless of who won the election you know that's a that's a moot point but trade unions continue to be involved there's a tripartite approach to running the country um involving employers government and trade unions and that persists really all the way through the 50s the 60s and only begins to fall apart at the end of the of the 1970s yeah so big change
2: yeah as you, as you, i mean as you say that atlee's labour government was elected in 1945 and yeah you would say then it it becomes part of the establishment then
0: much more so yet very much you know there's there's never a possibility again until you get to the 70s of there being a general strike for example um it's just just unimaginable that there would have been a general strike in the 50s or the 60s um, it's only when the world economy uh, goes badly wrong in the 70s that that things become more confrontational um again and there are there are more issues that at stake
2: so how do things start to unravel then
0: Probably with rising oil prices, you know, you, you get to the seventies, you get inflation, uh, you get stagnation in in the economy. We've had a lack of investment in infrastructure uh, for, for since the Second World War. Effectively, uh, we've still been paying off the Second World War. So uh, by the time you get to the seventies, the British economy really um, is not in a good state. It's 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 held together by sort of string and chewing gum and of course as you start to look at wages well wages fall behind so in 1971 for example you have uh, miners going on strike again for uh, because their wages have fallen behind those of other skilled workers and no sooner have they won that dispute and gone back to work than inflation that sort of 20 odd percent, 20 plus percent, um, has meant that people are, are now worse off again. So, you know, it's a very difficult situation to be in uh, where your wages are constantly being being overtaken by prices. Um, and that, right, there is a rise in militancy as a result of that. You've also got people being brought in who want to restructure some of the industries. If you look particularly at, for example, British Leyland, which was almost a byword for, for, for industrial um, disputes in the, in the 70s. What's happening there is you've got a new uh, generation of managers being brought in to restructure uh, that company and that industry. And that's a really painful process if you're the person being restructured. Um, and, of course, that probably reaches its its height after the 1970s with the election of the, the uh, Margaret Thatcher's government, um, and, and and huge change from there onwards uh, for for industry and for trade unions.
2: Yeah, and just briefly, a popular internet search query around this is, "What was the winter of discontent?" That's a term I'm sure a lot of people have heard of.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the, the winter of discontent itself is in some ways quite separate to all the the industrial militancy that had, that had grown up in the in the seventies. So it wasn't really about docks and car factories and and mines and all the rest of it. It was um, really, it was about some fairly self-contained pay disputes in the public sector. But those were quite high profile. um, And some of the photographs and reports that came out of them um, were uh, quite emotive and, and, and there grew up this belief that trade unions were were running the country or attempting to run the country and creating chaos and look you can't bury the dead and um, uh, you know rubbish is piling up in the streets and so forth. Even where those oh, it's not, <laughs> not not a good thing in either instance. But those were not widespread happenings. Um, you know, it's like finding one pile of rubbish and saying look the whole country is covered in, in in black bin bags. Well, not really. But there was a sense there, I think, and that probably led to um, an increase in the Conservative vote at the 1979 general election, uh, which led to the first Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher, uh, and, and to, not initially, but, but sometime in, um, some fairly substantial legal changes um, uh, which affected trade unions quite badly, and the beginning of the decline of trade unions in terms of membership numbers. So membership had peaked around 13 million in 1979. Uh, and from there on in, it went into a fairly steep decline.
2: Indeed. And another key question here is, how did Thatcher break the unions?
0: There were a whole range of, of, of things going on. So there were a whole range, series of, of acts of parliament which made it more difficult to um, go out on strike. You had to hold ballots under certain conditions and gain certain numbers of votes from among a certain size of workforce before you could have a strike. Solidarity action was effectively banned. So you couldn't, if, if, if your mates in that industry were out on strike, you couldn't go out on strike in support of them because you didn't have a dispute with your employer. Your dispute was with someone else's employer, so that wasn't, was no longer seen as a legitimate thing to do. Um, the number of pickets was restricted to six, so there were a whole range of things that made it quite difficult for trade unions to conduct their that sort of business. But also, of course, trade unions began to be excluded from um, government, from consultative uh, processes. Um, government really no longer cared what trade unions thought about where you know, unemployment benefits should be or how it should be paid, for example. Um, so they, they were excluded. They lost that influence. But... It wasn't purely that sort of political thing. There was lots going on economically as well. Uh, so you see the the, the decline of, of lots of industries in this country in the 1970s, which had been strongholds of trade unionism. Shipbuilding disappears. Uh, the car industry um, becomes a, a shadow of its former self. We see the uh, miners' strike of 1984, which... Um, you know, decimates the coal industry, for example. And that had been a power, you know, real powerhouse for trade unionism. So it's not just that people no longer want to be in trade unions. It's the jobs that were previously unionised no longer exist. In fact, the industries no longer exist. And so, you know, employment starts to build up in other areas, of course, but those were not areas where trade unions were already established and uh, and in place and, and and could do something much for their members.
2: Yeah, looking back at the mid-1980s, I suppose it's synonymous with images of the miners' strike, isn't it?
0: It is. So the miners' strike of 84 was, was, was again, was a defensive thing. 1926 had been defensive and they lost. 1971, 73, 74... That was about improving paying conditions, miners were on the offensive and they won. You get through to the 1980s with the Thatcher government in power, they didn't want a repeat of what had happened to Ted Heath's government in the 70s and so they prepared, they stockpiled coal, Um, they ensured that coal could be imported from other countries. So they were well prepared for a dispute. This dispute didn't start about pay, Uh, it was never about pay, it was about job security. Arthur Scargill, the National Union of Mine Workers, said, look, we have this list of pits that are going to be closed by the government. Uh, and that closure list would have absolutely decimated the industry. And so what they went on strike about, essentially, was about pit closures. Because they were less pro- well prepared than the government was, they lost that strike. But it took 12 months. And like the 1926 general strike, it dragged on. It wasn't something that was over in a couple of weeks or a month. A lot of the miners didn't actually go back to work until a year after they came out on strike. Uh, So it was a long and and very bitter dispute. Um, And of course, after the dispute was over, many of those mines that were on that list closed in a fairly short space of time. Um, And over the years that followed, the mining industry, in effect, disappeared in this country.
2: Okay, I, I want to talk about the overall impact and legacy of the trade unions I mean, firstly what what kind of key trade union sources survive for historians today you know where can they be found
0: there are some fantastic resources mostly from the 1820s onwards I have to say or from, even from the 1850s onwards partly that's because of about legalities it was very difficult before 1824 uh partly it's about organizations so it's only from the 1850s you've got that central organization of for, for trade unions and and, and Records start to survive in any great number. But there's some fantastic resources. Um, If you just want to go and see trade union banners and um, badges and and, uh, all that sort of memorabilia and ephemera uh, and learn about trade union history, probably the best place in the country is the People's History Museum in Manchester, uh, which is a wonderful museum. it, it, it really is well worth a visit, even if you're, if you're in Manchester, even if you're not specially interested in, in trade unions. It's a fantastic place. But there are also lots of records in uh, more academic libraries. So there is the the, the Modern Records Centre at Warwick University has huge uh, archives, most of which have come from trade unions. So, you know, they they, they been built up over the over the decades in a, in a trade union head office somewhere and have eventually ended up at the, the Modern Records Center. And a lot of those are now online. So trade union journals, membership registers, um, admission registers, and so forth. There's vast amounts that haven't yet been digitized, probably never will be, but there's a, there's a big project at, at, at Warwick to digitize what they've got, uh, and there's lots on their website. Um, other places, the, the the working class movement library in Salford, so actually just down the road from the People's History Museum, is, is also a fantastic resource with lots of union records, um, and the TUC library collections in in, in London, um, which you know is actually all the archives from what was the TUC library in in 1922 onwards, but all transferred to the TUC Libraries collection, uh, and all accessible to the public. So if you've got research to do, there's some great resources, um, some of which will require a visit, some of which are online. But I would definitely start with the People's History Museum in Manchester. It's inspirational.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> a brilliant museum. This is one from David Simmons on Instagram. Can we attribute weekends, bank holidays, and other things we take for granted to trade unions?
0: They certainly had a role in that. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't entirely say, well, that's down to trade unions. There's also people campaigning for, you know, sort of keeping Sunday special or treating Sunday as a special day, for example. So there's a religious element in there as well. But yes, one of the things that trade unions achieved in terms of sort of holidays and and, and working conditions and so forth uh, came through that political role that they had. So whereas... You know, Individual unions and individual disputes might win more pay for someone or might um, uh, win shorter hours for them. It's only by generalising that by political means um, that they've been able to sort of make that really big impact. Um, and, and for example, um, health and safety at work, um, maternity rights, um, minimum wage, all those things uh, came about because trade unions were... Um, taking a political role and and, and pressing for that and using their industrial strength to to gain
2: that. And then finally, to close off then, what about the state of Britain's trade unions today? Has the movement recovered from its, or is it recovering from its late 20th century decline in terms of membership? Membership decline
0: has declined sort of pretty much every decade for the past 40 years. So I think it would be sort of, over-optimistic to say that, that trade unionism has recovered. But there have been, there were, there were steep declines. So in the 80s, uh, so there were there was very steep declines. But then there have been long periods of, of stability as well, um, particularly throughout the 1990s uh, and into the early 2000s. We then saw another big dip in around 2016. There's now about 6.5, 6.7 million People in trade unions. So only half the number that there were at its absolute peak. But actually, for the past four or five years, trade union numbers have increased a bit. It's slow and steady. It would be, I think, wrong to suggest that that trade unions are, are, are gonna all of a sudden go back to where they were in the 1970s. Um, it's, just, it's just not gonna happen. I don't think anyone wants to see that happen, but even in terms of numbers, um, no they haven't recovered but they're still there. Uh, they are still probably among the biggest membership organizations um, of any in the country. Uh, I think probably the women's Institute might have more members than the trade union <laughs> movement but I'm, I'm, I don't know anyone else has. Uh, so they are you know they're a big important um, uh, set of organizations with lots and lots of members um, and they're not going away anywhere soon. Um, I think it's likely that trade unionism will will increase rather than decrease, um, although I think it's unlikely that we're going to get back to the levels that we, that we once saw.
2: Indeed, Mark. And that's a really fascinating and comprehensive answer and also a great place to end the podcast. So thank you very much for coming on today and responding to listeners' questions. I'm sure that people will be thrilled to have their queries answered. Thanks very much, John. That
1: was Mark Crail who's a writer and researcher, and he's also currently the web editor for the Society for the Study of Labour History. Mark has also written a book, Tracing Your Labour Movement Ancestors, which was published by Pen & Sword. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.